the desperate man sits in the corner of the church auditorium, hoping nobody notices him. He's got a dry mouth. He's got moist palms. He hardly moves. He feels out of place in a room full of disciples. This man has lost everyone he holds dear. He's lost everything in life. He has violated every belief he's ever cherished. He's hurt just about every person he's ever loved. He spent a night doing what he swore he would never do. And now, Sunday morning, he sits in the corner and he stares. He doesn't speak. In his mind, keeps running this idea. If these people only knew what I did. They're scared. He's guilty. He's broken. He's alone. This man, he could be an addict. He could be a thief. He could be a wife beater. He could be a she. Single. Pregnant. Confused. He could be any number of people. For any number of people, step foot in the church in the same condition. Hopeless, hapless, and helpless. The question is, how will the church react? What will this man find in the church? Criticism or compassion? Rejection or acceptance? Raised eyebrows or extended handshakes? Today, we're going to be in week four of our sermon series that we've called Pursuing God's Heart, a study on the life of David. Last week, if you remember where we were, we studied how Saul had this increased opposition towards David. That David had been nothing but faithful. He had served God faithfully. He had served Saul faithfully. And Saul returned by having those six crazy, murderous attempts on David's life. And we saw how last week that despite Saul's opposition, God gave David exactly what David needed. He gave him a friend named Jonathan. Today, though, today things are different. Today we're going to see David is kind of like that man who steps into the corner of the church. Everything has been taken away. He's done the very thing he swore he would never do. And here he comes broken and rejected. So if you have a Bible, today we're going to be in 1 Samuel Our primary text is going to be 1 Samuel chapter 22, but we're going to look at everything from 19, uh, chapter 19 all the way through chapter 22. We'll also look at Psalm chapter 57. So if you need a Bible, just slip your hand up and uh, we've got an usher in the back. Tom, can you uh, come and bring some Bibles around for us? And uh, and we'll uh, be able to jump in there. As we start out this morning, we're going to see how David is brought to the point of having nothing. We're going to see how David was had everything that he held Everything that brought him comfort, everything that brought him stability, everything that would have made part of his identity. We're going to see these things stripped away. Everything that he could lean on for support is going to be removed. And it's at that point with nothing left to stand on. 
that we will find David in the cave of Adullam. And we, you and I, will learn lessons from the cave of Adullam. Before we do this, would you join me in prayer? God, we just come before you today and thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace. The grace that you love us. The grace that no matter how messed up we are, no matter how hard our week was, that God, your presence is still upon us. So God, I plead for your presence here today. God, I know that there are victories that need to happen today. There are breakthroughs in our heart. So God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear, that God, you would be glorified today, and that there would be, allow us to take a, a further step in our relationship with you. So God, I pray that you give us understanding to the words, and that God, you would speak to us, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So, as we look at this message today, we're going to see that David had these, these sources of stability. Uh, these are sources of stability that you and I would build our stable lives on. We would build our identity upon. And we're going to see David has some of those same sources of stability. And we're going to see how each one of these becomes removed. The first source of stability is David's career. Now, obviously, especially for a man, a career is a big part of who we are as an identity. If we can go to work and we can earn a paycheck, man, that's a pretty good thing. That's going to give us some respect. It's going to make us feel good about ourselves. David, after defeating Goliath, he was made a general in Saul's army. That's a pretty good spot to be in. But if you remember what we looked at last week, we saw 1 Samuel chapter 19 and verses 9 and 10. It says, Then a harmful spirit of the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul, Saul sought to pin him, pin David to the wall with a spear. But David eluded Saul, so that the spear struck the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. You see, David had been, pro- had been brought into the army. He had proven himself faithful time again. He even proved himself to be heroic in fighting the Philistine, Goliath. And now, all of that is over with a flash of a spear. Saul is going to kill David as soon as he can, as soon as he has the opportunity. So David can no longer serve in his role as commander of David's army, he can, of Saul's army. He can no longer serve in that capacity. So his career has now been taken away from him. Never again will David serve in Saul's army. Next, David turns to the comfort of his marriage. The comfort of his marriage. This is a good place to turn, right? Men... If you're going through a hard time, your wife is a good place to turn. Now, if you remember, remember David's wife, Michael, this was Saul's daughter that he gave to David as a reward for killing Goliath. And we read last week how Saul came and was going to try and, and, and kill David and Michael helped him escape. Michael did this Ferris Bueller's type thing and put some pillows under the sheet to make it look like David was sleeping so David could escape. And remember what happened when Saul found out? Saul was mad. And Saul confronted his daughter and said, what did you do? Remember how she replied? 1 Samuel 19, verse 17. And Michael answered Saul and said, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Michael lies to her father about David and says, the only reason I let him escape is because he threatened to kill me. 
This further adds fuel to the fire of Saul's rage against David and makes him further want to kill David all the more. And it's at this point that David loses the stability of his marriage because his wife, Michael, her loyalty wasn't to David. It was to Saul, her father. On that day, David lost trust in his wife. Never again would they live in harmony. They were like that couple who, even though they were married, they slept in different beds. They were no longer living in harmony. Next, David has lost his career. He's lost his wife. And we skipped over this last week where we're going to see that David, he runs away in verse 18 and he flees to the house of Samuel. Samuel was the man that anointed him to be the king after Saul. This would have been a mentor of sorts. And so David, he's going through this hard time. Of course, he's going to run to his mentors. Of course, he's going to run to Samuel. Seeking comfort from his mentor. This would have been a refuge. Samuel would have known what to do. Samuel would have had great advice. Samuel would have said, I'll help you through this. But shortly after David arrives in Samuel's city, verse 19 of chapter 19 says that someone had told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. And no doubt, Saul will soon be seeking David's life there. Now the stability of his mentor Samuel is now gone, no longer available for Saul's or for David's comfort. So what does David do next? Of course, remember Jonathan, his best friend, his BFF. Of course, that's what he's going to do. And so, and so David runs from Samuel to Jonathan, his soulmate, his best friend. And Jonathan, remember, he wants to help, but what can he do? We looked at 1 Samuel chapter 20 last week. How, how David said, hey, Jonathan, your dad's trying to kill me. And Jonathan said, no, my dad wouldn't never do that. And David said, no, he is. Let's do this little ruse. Let's do a little test to see just whether or not Saul wants to kill my life. And sure enough, it proved that Saul wanted to kill David. In chapter 20, verse 42, after it becomes all revealed, Jonathan runs out to David and hugs him. And cries and tears. And this is what he says in verse 42. Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And David rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. David goes off in one direction. Jonathan goes off in the other direction. And now David, David has lost his career. He's lost his marriage. He's lost his mentor. And now he's lost his best friend. Where else? Where else could David turn to for support? You picture desperation beginning to sink in. David thinks, you know, I know where I can go next. I, I, I can go to the pastor. I can go to the priest. The priest will help me. He's, that's his job. That's what he's supposed to do. And so chapter 21 tells the story. David goes to the city of Nob, which is known as the city of priests, because there were some 85 priests who lived in this city. And so he's met, when he comes into the city, he's met by the high priest by the name of Ahimelech. Uh, and he, he says, hey, David, what brings you here? David, you're the mighty warrior. 
David, you're the giant killer. David, you're the king's son-in-law. What brings you to our city? And David, he said everything he's trusted taken away. And he resorts to lying. And he lies to the priest. He says in verse 2, And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter to which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you have here. See, David's desperate. He's so desperate, he's resorting to lying. Saul hasn't sent David on any sort of mission. David's a fugitive. Unfairly, yes, but David is still a fugitive in the kingdom. And Ahimelech, he's got no reason to disbelieve David. He assumes David's telling the truth. But the problem is, there's just nothing that Ahimelech can do. He says, the only bread I have is the holy bread. You know, there was, he basically had two types of bread. You had the regular common bread that anybody could eat. And then he had this holy bread that was called the bread of the presence. And what would happen with this holy bread is he would bake this bread, the high priest would, and then he would put it on the table next to the altar as an offering to God. And that bread would sit there for an entire week. And after a week, the priests, and mind you, only the priests, could take that bread and eat that bread. Of course, it's a week old. Anybody's, not anybody's going to want it. But that's what happens for the priest. And so, and so he's got this problem. David, you're not a priest. And the only bread I have is this holy bread. And it's just been put out today. It hasn't been a week. So Ahimelech thinks, what am I going to do? Do I, do I distribute the bread and violate the law? Or do I keep the law and ignore David's hunger. So Himalek starts thinking and starts looking for a loophole. He says in verse 4, he says, Asks the men if they have kept themselves from women. And if they are pure, Himalek thinks, if they're just pure, if they've been pure from women, then perhaps they could have the bread. And this is where David jumps on the opportunity. He says in verse 5, and David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young man are holy, even when it is on an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Ahimelech says, okay, let's do this. But here's the thing. Look what happened next. Verse 7 says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Doeg. He sees David. He sees what's happening with Ahimelech. And the second half of chapter 22 is going to tell us what happened. One day, Saul is in his, a couple days later, Saul is in his, his, his house and he's got all of his, 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 his people around him. And he's complaining and he's mad and he's saying, why haven't any of you been able to find David? I want to know where David is so I can kill him. And Doeg is there. And Doeg says, hey, 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 king, king, I know where David was. David was with Ahimelech and Ahimelech gave him some bread and gave him a sword. And so Saul calls Ahimelech to the house. He says, 
Himelech, tell me what happened. And Himelech says, you know what? David has done nothing wrong. David has been faithful to you. And David needed bread. And I gave him bread. So King Saul, in his rage, he tells the soldiers, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill the priest. I want you to kill him. I want you to kill his wife. I want you to kill his children. Do it now. The soldiers, though, they're like, dude, this is the priest. This is the pastor. We don't touch the pastor. But Doeg, what a dork. What a horrible name. Doeg says, hey, this is my opportunity to get in favor with the king. I'll do it. And so, it, so Doeg goes and he kills Ahimelech. He kills Ahimelech's family. And he goes up to the city of Nob and he kills all 85 of those priests that lived in that city. You picture what's happening to David. The end of the chapter of chapter 22, David is informed of what happened. And it says in verse 22, David said to Abiathar, I knew that on the day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. David realizes the priest the pastor, the elders, he's cut off from them as well. There's nothing left to stand on. David has nowhere else to turn. But I'll tell you what, it's going to get worse before it gets any better. The final blow, all that David has left is his self-respect. And he's going to hit the lowest point of his life. Turn back to chapter 21 and verse 10. It says, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Gath, this was the hometown of Goliath. This was the headquarters of the Philistines. This was the Washington, D.C. of Israel's enemies, of David's enemies. This is their headquarters. And of all places, David walks into the headquarters seeking protection from the enemy. Hey, if Saul is their enemy, and if Saul is David's enemy, then surely they can be friends, right? Nope. The Philistines are not going to be that hospitable. Immediately, David is recognized by the people. And the people say in verse 11, It's not this David, the king of the land. Did they not sing to one another about David and dances? Saul has struck his thousands and David his tens tens thousands. And David took these words to heart. and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Here's our hero. This is a man after God's own heart. He's seeking shelter from the enemy. And when he gets exposed, he begins foaming at the mouth and scratching and clawing at the door, looking like a madman. And the king responds. Sometimes the Bible is just really funny. The king responds in verse 14 and says, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? Why have you brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? He says, I've already got enough crazy people here. Why'd you bring me this one? I don't want this crazy man here. So David is kicked out. 
can't even find refuge, can't even find comfort in the enemy. So here is David. He can't go to the court of Saul. He can't go to the house of Michael. Jonathan was crossed off the list. Samuel is crossed off the list. Can't find safety in Nob. Can't even find solace in the enemy. David is cut off from anything. He has nothing left to stand on. What do you do at that moment? Everything's falling apart. People are fleeing from you. See, David, he's an example of a man after God's own heart. We're supposed to look to David and we're supposed to learn from him how you and I can be men and women after God's own heart. And it's easy, it's easy for us to look at David when everything's going good. It's easy for us to look at David and say, I can learn from him and I can be like him when he's being faithful with the sheep out in the field. It's easy for us to look at David and say, we can take courage just like David in the face of Goliath. It's easy for us to to want to be like David when he's living with integrity, when Saul is sinfully trying to kill him. But what about now? David is homeless with no place to go. He's a fugitive on Israel's 10 most wanted list. He lied to the priest. He even tried to find comfort from the enemy. The same people that David and all of Israel had been fighting against. What kind of example is that for you and I to follow? What are we to learn from this? I said this last week. This is why I love the story of David. This is why I need to hear David's story because it's so real. It's so real. His life is often so much like mine. I mean, we go through these, we go through these peaks and with these valleys, we go through these ups and downs in life. There's, there's times when it's kind of like we're, we're, we're at lion's pool and we're on the high dive and we do this beautiful swam dive off the top and we land into the water and everybody cheers and says, you are so awesome. We love you. But then there's other times when we climb on that diving board and we jump off and we do this horrible belly flop. And everybody's watching and they don't want to look at you because they don't want to acknowledge you because they're embarrassed about you. And this becomes the way that we live. We have these highs and we have these lows. We have these times when everybody's behind us and with us and everything's going good. And we have those times when everything is falling apart. And it seems like nobody is there. This is why I love the story of David. Because yes, David's going to go wacko for a few verses. But it's what he does next that becomes a lesson for us today. Chapter 22, verse 1. It says, David departed from there and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. This is the lowest point of David's life. He's got nothing left to lean on. He's got nowhere else to go. And the Bible says that David escaped to the cave Adullam. Might seem kind of anticlimactic. It's like a cave. Like I've been to Boulder Cave. Who cares? You know, I've been through that cave with no headlamp on. I mean, who cares? It's just a cave, right? But there are lessons that we will learn from the cave Adullam. See, I want you to picture David. I want you to picture David on his knees, 
face down on the damp floor of the dark cave. Everything is gone. Everyone he's loved is gone. He's done the very thing he never thought he would. And now he's face down in a cave all alone. But suddenly, David remembers he's not alone. And from, from that cave, David pens a couple of different psalms, specifically Psalm chapter 57. In Psalm chapter 57, this is what David says. He says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge to the storms of destruction pass me by. Did you hear that word refuge? It means shelter or protection in times of trouble. Here's David. He's stripped of everything that he could trust. He's stripped of everything. And he wrote this. In you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. The lesson we need to learn is to make God your refuge. This word refuge is going to be one of David's favorite words. If you go through the book of Psalms and you circle every time it says refuge, you're going to circle almost 50 times that David writes about refuge in the book of Psalms. But never did it have more meaning than Psalm chapter 57. The introduction to Psalm 57 explains its background. It says a Psalm of David when he fled from Saul in the cave of Dullam. And the, simple, the lesson is so simple. Make God your refuge. Not your career. Not your spouse. Not your marriage. Not your reputation. Not your retirement account. Make God your refuge. Let him encircle you. Let him be the wall that stops the wind from beating down on you. Let him be the roof that stops the rain from pouring down on you. Let him be the foundation that you and I stand on. There's a woman named Corey Tenboom. She is a woman who understand, understood what it meant to make God her refuge. She grew up in the, in the Netherlands with her family in the early and mid-1900s during the Holocaust years. And during those years, Corey and her family, they opened up their homes. They opened up their home to, to, to Jews that were on the run for their lives. In fact, what they did is they built a little room uh, beside Corey's bedroom that they called the hiding place. And what they would do is they would hide Jews who were on the run when the occupation forces came in to try and take Jews to take them off to concentration camps. And they hid hundreds of people during their time when they were helping the Jews out. In early 1944, someone alerted the authorities. They alerted the Nazis to what Corey and her family were doing. And the Nazis came and they arrested Corey. They arrested her entire family. And they took Corey and they took her sister and they separated from the rest of the family and they put them in a political concentration camp. And not only that, Corey watched as her sister was killed in that concentration camp. In the midst of being taken from her family, of losing her sister, of being placed in that concentration camp, Corey began to understand what David came to understand. 
And she wrote this. She said, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. See, so many of us, we want to have our refuge be something else. We build our refuge on our job or our career. As long as we can work, we're good. As long as we have a reputation, we're good. We make our our spouse or our relationship our refuge. As long as I got a pretty girl to lay in my arms, I'm going to be good and I'm going to be fine. We make our reputation our refuge. As long as I can look good to people, and as long as people like me, as long as I'm still getting likes on my page, then I'm good and happy and satisfied. We make that bottle our refuge. We make those websites our refuge. David and Corey learned something here. Make God your refuge. Make God your strength. Let him be the one who holds you up. Let him be the one who carries you through those hard times. Because I'll tell you what, all of those other things do not stand the test of time. All of those other things, there may be a day when your career is not there anymore and you have to start all over and you have no job. There may be a day when your spouse is no longer with you. There may be a day when, 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 when you don't have it all together and people don't like you anymore. All of those things are fleeting. This is what David began to realize. I can't build my identity on all these other things, on my job, on my wife, on my mentor, on my friend, because all those things are fleeting. They're here today and they could be gone tomorrow. There's only one thing that we can make our refuge that will always be there. And that's upon God, on his presence, on his strength. There's only one true place that you will find a refuge, and that is in God's presence. But the cave of Abdullah, it doesn't just teach us to find our refuge in God. It also is going to teach us that David found community among God's people. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, look back at verse 1. It says that when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down from there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in the soul gathered to, to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. These are not the honors class people. These are not highly successful people. These are people who are in trouble, who are in debt, who are discontent. Misfits. Bottom of the barrel type people. Rejects, losers, dropouts. Everyone who was in distress, these are people who had pressure, stress. They came by the hundreds to see David. People who were in debt made their way to him. People who couldn't pay their bills, who couldn't pay back the loans that they had taken. People who were discontented. This means people who were bitter to the soul because they had been wronged and they had been mistreated. So you got a picture in that day. Saul was king over all of Israel. And Saul overtaxed the people. He had mistreated them. 
Remember, Saul was a madman who was given to bouts of depression, who was given to fits of rage. And now the people of Israel are all beginning to suffer. And some of those people could take it no longer. And so David ended up with a cave full of broken, malcontent people. Doesn't this sound like a picture of the church? Are we not distressed, debtors, but discontented? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, For for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. See, strong churches, strong churches, they are not full of people from the honors class. They're not full of sexy people with everything good in life. Strong churches, they're populated with people just like this who are looking for a refuge in a empty, dark, cold cave. Strong churches are filled with current and former cave dwellers. People who have realized they have no other refuge but God alone. These people might have lost their reputation. They might have lost their career. They may be relationally broken. Maybe some of them have told lies at Nob. Maybe some of them, maybe some of them have gone crazy with the enemy. But they have finally realized there is no refuge in anything other than God. Who is David to turn these men away? Man, he's no candidate to be the leader. He's a magnet for marginalized people because he's marginalized himself. So David creates this community of misfits. And what God does is God forges a, a, a mighty group of men out of this group of people. First Chronicles chapter 12 describes him and he says, for, for from day to day men came to David to help him until there was a great army, like an army of God. These misfit, broken people are described as an army of God. See, Restoration Church, I think this is a prescription for us. I think this is a picture of what the church is supposed to look like. We're supposed to be a group of people who find refuge in God and in God alone. Not God in my reputation, not God in my marriage, not God in my business. We're supposed to be people who find refuge in God alone. We're supposed to be people who welcome the community of God's people. One of the observations that I think we're making as a group of people. And sometimes when we go through dark seasons, sometimes we go through difficult seasons. What happens is we begin to turn outward. We begin to say, you know, instead of focusing here on God's people, I'm going to take my difficulty and my struggle and I'm going to go talk to these other people about it instead of leaning right in to the community of God's people that God has given us. 
I think God's word would say, no, right here, this is what we have to do. This is where we lean in together and say, this is what God has done. Because I think that God has the ability to turn this into something beautiful and amazing if we find refuge in him and if we lean in to the community that God has given us right here. I'm going to finish with, with, with just one story. There's a story of an old Marine. This was a guy who was never really interested in spiritual things. When he was in the service, he cursed like a sailor. He drank heavily. He fought often. He chased women. He loved weapons and he hated the chapel services. To the drill sergeant, this man was a perfect Marine. But to God, him and God weren't really on speaking terms. A few years after leaving the service, this man came to Christ and became a Christian. And had his life transformed. One day he was talking to his friend about his faith. And this is what he told his friend. He said, the only thing I miss. The only thing I miss is an old fellowship. That all of our guys in our outfit used to have. And the tavern down on the base. He said, man, we'd sit around. We'd laugh. We'd tell stories. We'd drink a few beers. And he said, you know, we would really let our hair down. It was great. He paused for a moment. He said, I just haven't found anything to take the place of that great time we used to enjoy. I don't have anybody to admit my faults to. I don't have anybody to put their arms around me and tell me that I'm still okay. See, my stomach begins to churn as I read that. Because all that man needed was a refuge. He needed someone to hear him out, not someone to judge, not someone to condemn. That story reminds me of something else I I, I bookmarked years ago. And I read this, and this is what it says. It says, the neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship that Christ wants us to have in his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace escape rather than reality. It is permissive. It is an accepting and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. You can tell people your secrets and they usually don't tell others and even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. See, I I believe with all my heart that Christ wants his church to be this. A fellowship that people can come in and they can say, I'm sunk. I'm beat. I'm broken. I've had it. And this becomes a safe place. This becomes a safe place. There isn't condemnation. There isn't judging. There's grace and there's love. So let's just get very painfully specific here this morning. Where do you turn when the bottom drops out of your life? Where do you turn when you face that issue that is embarrassing, overwhelming, maybe even scandalous? Maybe it's the test that comes back positive. 
Maybe your spouse is talking about separation or divorce. Maybe your daughter has run away for the fourth time. And this time, you're afraid she's going to come back pregnant. How about the time that you've lost your job and it was your fault? Maybe it was financially. Maybe you blew it. Where do you go when alcoholism is wreaking havoc? Where do you go when you find out your spouse is having an affair? Where do you turn when you flunk the entrance exam or you mess up the interview? You need a shelter. You need someone who understands. You need a cave of a dullum to sneak into. Discouraged people don't need critics. They hurt enough already. They don't need more guilt or piled on distress. They need encouragement. They need a word. A place to hide and to heal. A willing and caring somebody who's available just to listen and put their arm around you to say, it's okay. You're going to be okay. Why not share in David's shelter and David's refuge? David called him my strength, my mighty rock, my fortress, my stronghold, my mighty tower. We know him today by a different name. We know him by Jesus Christ. And he's still available today. Lonely people needing someone to care. Jesus is available to you today. Can we pray? God, I love the picture of the church being a refuge. The place when everything is falling apart. That we don't have to pretend. We don't have to put on the facade. We don't have to try to look good and to look the part. But God, the church is supposed to be the place that we come broken. We come as we really are. And we find refuge in you. We find your presence to carry us through. On the darkest days, we know we're not alone because you are there with us, holding our hands in the darkness of that difficulty. And that God is the church. We're supposed to be the community of God's people. We're supposed to be people who wrap our arms around each other and not look at each other and say, well, you're different than me. And, and you have all these issues. We're supposed to love in the midst of that. But how many times have it become separation? How many times has it become, I just got to look the part? Oh, how I pray that we would be a cave of Adullam right here for each other and for our city. That there'd be hope found through the refuge of Jesus Christ. That there'd be comfort found in the people of God right here. God, I pray for those in here today who need to experience that love, that refuge. That today they would cry out and say, God, I need you here. I need you now. I need your presence. I need your comfort. God, I pray for those who are coming in as David with nowhere else to turn. That God, they would find the community of God right here. That God, whether we are coming today as a Jonathan or as a David, as a broken person or someone with something to offer, that we would lean in and say, God, I'm yours. 
however you would use me. If today it's to put my arm around someone else and say, you're loved, you're not alone. Or if it's me crying and having someone put their arm around me, God, I pray that we would have that faith. God, this is available because of your son, Jesus, and what he did on the cross. God, that's why we're gathered here today as a church. That's why we exist. So God, I pray that as we have the opportunity now to respond to your word through communion, that God, you would just remind us of what your son sacrificed for us. Of what your son sacrificed so that we could be here today as a church, as a community of God. God, we understand that the bread represents your body that was broken for us. And the juice represents your blood that was spilled for us. God, the Apostle Paul tells us before we partake in communion, we're to search within our hearts for any sin that's left there. That we would confess that before you. God, I pray that you would encourage every one of us to spend that time doing that today. That we would just be still before you. That, God, you would bring the sin to our hearts. God, specifically, I pray for those who need a refuge. That, God, you would be that today. They would would cry out to you and say, God, I need you. God, I pray for all of us. That as we think about the community of God, if there's been areas that we've been held back, there's areas that we have been judgmental, and there's areas we have not been committed to one another, have not been willing to be like the cave of Adullam, that God, we would confess that before you. God, I pray as we have the opportunity to respond to your word through worship and through communion. God, that you would touch us and draw us closer to you. A way of instruction. Scripture says that communion is meant for believers. If you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that today. If you'd like to know how to become a Christian, how you can receive that refuge. And during this first song, come on up. I'd love to come and talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to put my arm around you and encourage you. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we'd encourage you just to observe. If you have placed your faith in Christ, I encourage you to spend a few minutes between you and the Lord. And after you'd spend a little bit of time, I encourage you to come forward to either side of the stage up here and partake of the elements. We don't take communion together as a church. We want it to be a personal time between you and the Lord. So come forward when you're ready. God, I just pray for your presence to continue to be on us. That you would comfort us exactly as we need. That you would build us into the community of God. That we would lean on each other. God, you are good. God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you've done. We praise you for the sacrifice you made on that cross. So that we can have a relationship with you. Jesus, we love you and we ask this in your holy name.